verse 14, chapter 3, book of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. The words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove. And discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to ask you again for another week to risk, risk believing that there's something in the Word of God here for you this morning. And simply that in your heart of hearts, you just simply pray, Lord, speak to me. Make it real for me. Now, we need to give you a little bit of background. I will show you a few pictures. The city of Laodicea is not a live city any longer. It is a ruin, an archaeological dig site, if you will. But we have traveled now about 40 miles southeast from Philadelphia, our previous stop on the mail route. Um, that, uh, that these letters were delivered to. We are 100 miles due east of uh, the large city of Ephesus. And we have, we have moved into the Lycus River Valley. And there happen to be three very famous cities that are clustered, that are bunched together in the Lycus River Valley. Heropolis, Laodicea, and the little town of Colossae. And Laodicea is situated between the other two, in the middle, if you will. It was founded in 250 B.C. by Antiochus of Syria, and it was named Laodicea after his wife, Laodicea. It was a strategic city because there were three major highways that intersected in Laodicea, and one of them was the Roman road that connected everything that went east uh, from the west, from Rome. So if you wanted to travel from Europe by land, 
or to the Middle East, or you even wanted to travel to Africa, you would usually go along this Roman road through the Lycus Valley and through Laodicea. And as a result, Laodicea became a booming center of commerce based on its location. Laodicea, one other thing, had no natural defenses like other cities we've discussed on this journey that we've been on, which made it much more vulnerable. The fact that its water supply was six miles away and had to be piped in by aqueduct and pipe didn't help because it could easily be cut off, you see, in time of invasion if an army surrounded the city. More about the water problems in a minute. But even without natural fortification or defenses, it thrived. It thrived because of Pax Romana, Latin for Roman peace. Roman rule stabilized that area and protected them from any fear of invasion for several centuries. And so Laodicea became very wealthy. And it wasn't old money, by the way, like we talked about in the letter to Sardis, that very ancient city of wealth. This was new money. Laodiceans were high energy uh, they, were, they were quite mobile. They were very creative. They saw opportunity. They were entrepreneurial. They seized opportunity when it came their way. And they made the most of it. And they became the envy of their world because of it. Because they operated on such a big scale. They became like the Madison Avenue and Wall Street of Asia Minor in their day. They were that successful. In 26 AD, they were one of 11 cities that competed in that region to build a temple to Tiberius, who was then the emperor of Rome. In our day, that would be like uh, ambitious cities uh, putting together a bid to host the Olympics, if you will. It would be very prestigious for the city if they were awarded that honor. A lot of money would come their way as a result. So they put in their bid to build this temple to Tiberius, and Rome turned them down. Rome said to Laodicea, we don't think you have what it takes. And the Laodiceans said, we'll show you. So for the next 35 to 40 years, they pulled off what was an economic miracle. They were so successful. Now you remember... You know, we talked about there was an earthquake in the area in AD 17. Now, Laodicea was one of the cities spared in that earthquake, even though Heropolis nearby tumbled down. But Laodicea later was destroyed by earthquake in 61 AD. And Rome offered the same offer to Laodicea that had given those 11 cities destroyed earlier. They would remit their taxes for five years in help to help them rebuild their city. And the Laodiceans followed suit with like the city of Sardis we talked earlier and refused any help from Rome. They said, no, we've got it covered. We've got enough wealth. We don't need your help. They wanted to maintain their sense of dignity and their independence. Their prominence if you will, a very proud city. By the time John delivered this letter, they had more wealth, more money than any other city in all of Asia Minor. 
one of the greatest examples of creation of wealth in all of the ancient world. Now you ask, how did they do it? I'm glad you asked. There are three things that, that Laodiceans were famous for, that the city was famous for. Banking, textiles, and pharmaceuticals. Banking, textiles, and pharmaceuticals. Banking. Laodicea was the banking and financial capital of all of that region. It's where you went to exchange currency. It's where the, you know, where the value of currency was established, where you could get a line of credit. Uh, if, you had, if you wanted any business connections that would have connections back to Rome, you went to Laodicea. At that time, it was, you know, it was the center of banking for the entire region. And then there was textiles. Now, if I were to mention to you, like cities like Palo Alto and San Jose and Santa Cruz and Santa Clara and Saratoga, what does that make you think of? California, but Silicon Valley. It wasn't always a Silicon Valley, wasn't it? Right? But because of all the high-tech companies that moved in and began to develop you know, these microscopic chips for computers and, and all of the technology associated with it, it became known as the Silicon Valley, right? Well, one of the ways that Laodicea became so wealthy because they were, uh, they were leaders in technology and cultural trends as well. They were leaders in the fashion industry, if you will. They developed a textile industry that produced inexpensive garments that were made out of black wool. They specialized in a breed of sheep that were famous for their soft, sort of velvet black wool, and they raised massive flocks on those highland plateau, on the highland plateau that was right there with them where they were, and they mass-produced inexpensive outer garments, especially a tunic that was called tremita. Tremita. It impressed everyone all over the world, and it became a major export of this region. Laodicea was later nicknamed, nicknamed Trimetaria, like Silicon Valley, known for this, this incredibly well-liked, loved garment worn literally everywhere in the known world of that day. Well-dressed people all across the Roman Empire ordered their clothes from Laodicea. And then there was pharmaceuticals. Another way they grew wealthy was the city became an educational center that featured a prestigious state-of-the-art medical school and hospital. They were pioneers in the area. Listen, the field of ophthalmology. There was a very famous doctor there, well-known, Demosthenes Philothes, who, who was the first to develop medicine to treat eye disorders. They developed a salve made from Phrygian powder, what was called Phrygian powder, that was exported, exported all over the world. It took the world literally by storm in that day. So they were leaders in, in applying high-tech solutions of their day to health and health care, and the money just kept pouring in. Famous for, of all things, I salve. Are you starting to kind of hear some themes in the letter? Mm-hmm. The Laodiceans, this was Laodicea, it was the land of opportunity. It, it was also the place where the wealthy went to retire. 
because of banks for security of their money, medicine, investment opportunities, kind of dabble with your 401k, right? It was that kind of place. Money, fashion, health. Why? They had it all. I mean, who needs God in a city like that? I mean, they, they, and they were self-made, too. Keep, keep that in mind. Uh, they had great civic pride and personal pride. If you buy into that, it's a very dangerous place to live spiritually, isn't it? So let's look a little closer at the letter, if you will. Verse 14, and the angel, to the angel of the church, the messenger to the church at Laodicea to write, and here's Jesus' self-description. Remember, at the beginning of each letter, he gives some characteristics of himself that are pertinent to the conversation or the letter that he's having. You know, and he says, he, here's how he identifies himself. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He is the amen. Hmm. That's the actual Greek word, by the way. In the Greek, it's amen. It's always, it seems, the last word we speak in our prayers, isn't it? As if to say, truly or so be it. In the Gospels with Jesus, it's sometimes the very first words that he speaks. When he really wants our attention, he says, Amen. Translated, truly, I say unto you. On a number of creations, he doubles down on it and says, Amen and Amen. When he really wants our attention. In the King James, we translate that how? Verily, verily. Or truly, truly, amen and amen. When he wants our attention, he uses the amen. And he says to them, I am the amen. I am the amen. It's used in a very solemn way when truth is about to be spoken. Jesus is in effect saying, I'm guaranteeing what I'm about to say, guys. I'm guaranteeing what I'm about to say. And then he says, he is the witness. He is the witness, the faithful and the true witness. Now, there are three essentials that any of his readers with any kind of legal mind or legal training at all would have, you know, would have recognized. There are three essentials of a witness. Number one, he, number one, a witness has to have seen something with his own eyes. You cannot bear witness to something you have not seen. So you have to see it with your own eyes. Secondly, you must be absolutely honest you must be a person of integrity in order to convey it. And third, you had to be able to communicate it accurately and clearly. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have firsthand knowledge. I've seen it all. And I'm going to, I'm the faithful and true witness who's about to tell you what you need to know. And then last, he says, the beginning of God's creation the word beginning there is archi in, in the Greek. It's best translated, you know, we don't have time to get into the full-blown discussion, but it's best translated as the source. Trench translates it as dynamically the beginning. Um, 
the source, the archae of creation, the beginning of creation. And if you remember, in Scripture, how is creation brought into being? By the Word of God. Theodotic. God said, let there be light. And there was light. So everything that Jesus uses here in these three descriptions is about what he's about to speak as the word of God, who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, and who is the source of all creation. In effect, what he's saying here is, I was given the first word at creation, and the book of Revelation is, I will get the last word as well. I will speak the last word over creation. That's who I am. So, what about us? What about this little church? What will he say to them now that he speaks directly to them? Now, this is the second letter in the bunch of the seven letters where there is not a single commendation given. Um, In five out of the seven letters, you're aware, Jesus finds something that he can commend them for. But he is silent in the area of commendation here, as with Sardis. He has nothing really good to say to them, only a critique found in verse 15 and 16. Let's read it. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you would be either cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And I would simply point out to you that technically the, the, the words used in the original language here are extreme words. The word for cold is their word for freezing, ice cold. The word for hot is their word for boiling over hot. You're neither ice cold or boiling over. What you are is tepid, lukewarm. You are room temperature kind of people. And therefore, and he uses another very extreme word, therefore I will spew you out of my mouth. And it's the word for vomit. I will hurl. You make me so sick, I will hurl. Are you getting it? It's that specific. Okay. All right. So, what's the issue here? All right. Now, Heropolis, I mean, excuse me, Laodicea had one major problem, and that was water supply. It was water supply. Heropolis, nearby, only six miles away, was the home of, the, of what was called the Pamukkale Hot Springs, a mineral spring that just comes cascading out of the mountainside, heated by this volcanic 
this volcanic reaction going on deep within the earth's crust and it and it leaves this beautiful white limestone formations and pools full of heavy kind of mineral content you know what i'm saying but but it's extremely hot water in Heropolis. they became famous all around the, the roman empire because people came from all over the world there to take advantage th- thinking that there were therapeutic qualities kind of like the hot springs you know of of, uh, of arkansas way back when so people came from miles around other countries to come to Heropolis for the hot water the hot mineral springs to the south, a little east of Laodicea, about 10 miles, but visible from the city, was the little town of Colossae. And the letter of Colossians was written to it, and Laodicea is mentioned as a nearby city. And, and there was a lost letter to Laodicea, by the way, that Paul wrote that we don't know about now. But Colossae was known as a place where there was a very cool or cold underground spring. that was wonderful to drink. It, it, was no, it was sort of like the place you would get Perrier or Evian today. Was that, the water was just that good. Cold, a cold spring just coming out of the ground right there in Colossae. city of Laodicea was not so blessed. In order for them to locate themselves right in the intersection of the highway, you know, for the best business, they had to go get their water six miles away from an underground spring, and they had to transport it in. They had to pipe it in in aqueducts and in pipes. We have a a picture of some of the archaeological um, evidence of that. That kind of thing. They made pipes hewn out of rock to transport water. Okay? Now, here's the deal. You transport water over land for six miles from an underground spring. When it arrives in Laodicea, it's room temperature. Historically, what Jesus is saying, you know, guys, you're right there in between. You're in between Heropolis and Colossae. There's cool water down there in Colossae. There's really hot water, 95 degrees coming out of the ground, you know, bathing kind of water, you know what I'm saying, hot water to drink, hot water to cook with up in Heropolis. You guys are right in between, and guess what you are? Yeah, here's lukewarm. Room temperature. What does that mean for us spiritually? Because what Jesus is describing is a spiritual condition, right? He's using the, the history of the city. He's using the known facts and information about what the greatest problem for Laodicea was to say, your greatest problem is the fact that you're lukewarm. Spiritually, you are half-hearted. John Stott writes, the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters uh, is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this one, he adds. It describes vividly, vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity, Stott says, is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath. I like what John Piper has to say. 
Piper says his indictment against the church is that we are half-hearted in our relationship with him. They do not have the fervor and the warmth and the zeal of a true lover of Christ. Nor are they outright unbelievers who flatly reject Jesus and make no pretense of faith. They're just sort of halfway in between. Christ has a moderate influence in their lives. They are not uninfluenced by the Lord, but neither are they overboard or get too excited about the creator of the universe. In relation to prayer, they, it would be safe to say they might pray over a meal or, or think to pray sometime during the day about something going on in their life. But they do not burn with a desire for more of God. They do not go hard after him in the secret place. They do not fling the door wide open and welcome him into into the innermost places of their emotions. They keep him just outside the door. And they do their business with him coolly lukewarmly and through the mail slot. Hmm. Does that description fit any of us here? See, see if, if we're really honest, there have been periods in my life, you know, when I, I wasn't real fired up. How about you? When I struggled with faith, when... You know, when sometimes, I'll be honest, sometimes you just sort of get, um, you just sort of maybe flame out. You know, maybe you're, you know, for me, maybe it's that I get overcommitted. And then I just sort of, I just sort of burn out. And then I just want to just kind of pull back and keep my distance you know, whatever, and, and, and if I'm honest, I'll realize that, that, that after a while, I might be even sort of just sort of stiff-arming, you know, God a little bit and just kind of wanting him to stay out of my business. Anybody else ever? I'm hope, hopefully, you, you understand. And if we're honest, Stott's right. I mean, the church is just riddled with people who have a sort of respectability about religion, you know, and they, they certainly don't say, you know, they, they go to church from time to time and don't say bad things about Jesus. And, and uh, you know, they're not, let's say, unimpressed by him or unaffected by him. But the reality is, is they really kind of want to just, they want to just sort of stay at a safe distance. They don't want to get too overcommitted or too like hyped up or certainly do not want to be seen as somebody who's zealous for this stuff. And Jesus says, that makes me sick. I I wish you could just be ice cold. I mean, just be, so you're just indifferent to faith. So you just, you, you just, you just position yourself over here and say, you know, I'm just not a believer. I just don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy all that stuff. He says, I'd rather you be there. I can work with there. You know what I'm saying? 
I can bring things to bear in your life where I could reveal myself. I'm just saying, but, but just being, if you're going to be honest, be honest. Man, I'm stone cold over here. Or he says, he says man, if you're, if you're hot, if you're passionate about learning about, you know, your Lord and, and knowing him and, 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 and trusting and obeying him and, and honoring him. He said, man, I can work with that. I can really, I can, there's a lot I can do with that, man. You just, you hold on. I'll show you some stuff that you won't believe if you're, if, and if you are wired to want to really listen and look from, you know, for me and my activity and work with me. And, but if, if you're here, just kind of taking up space, I can't work with that. That's what he says. Verse 17. And, and, and see, here's where, here's, this, this compounds the problem here. But what compounds the problem is pride and arrogance every time. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I don't need a thing. Not realizing, maybe because you're either ignorant or in denial, <laughs> I'm saying, but Trust me, pride's a link. <laughs> Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now think about the, the, the very things this city is famous for. Wealth, banking, ISAV, and clothing, textiles. And he says, you are poor, blind, and naked spiritually The, the contrast would have been right before their eyes, folks. All you have to think about, you, you know, I saw this this week. I get off, make an exit off the toll road, and I'm in line behind about eight cars, you know. And all the cars in front of me, Lexus, uh, Cadillac CTS, um, a bit, you know, big uh, Land Rover SUV. I mean, I mean, West Plano is the luxury car capital of America. You do realize that, right? Seriously, more luxury cars per capita in West Plano than any place else in the world. It's true. So I'm behind eight cars. I mean, and, and I think there was maybe one that, you know, was a little bit beat up. But for the most part, I mean, eight luxury cars. And then there's a guy standing on the corner there at Park under the, under the bridge with a little sign, you know, saying, out of work, hungry, need food, begging. And this is the story in Laodicea. See, when, when, you, when cities are wealthy and active, like Laodicea, it was also the gathering place of the poor, the destitute, and the homeless. So you could not walk down the streets of Laodicea and not see it. And Jesus is just saying, for perspective, for perspective, here's what your lukewarmness really is. You're poor, blind, and naked. I've got some advice for you, he says. I counsel you to buy from me gold, which is refined by fire, so that you may be rich. Now, what's he talking about there? So that you could be financially set. Know that you can know a wealth and a riches 
that you don't know right now because you are poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually. So my counsel is that you would buy for me gold. There were banks full of stuff, gold, in Laodicea. But he said, no. You don't need the bank. You need me. My counsel is that you would buy from me gold, which is refined by fire, that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself. And white is the symbol of purity and holiness and righteousness. So, trust me, what, what Jesus means there, and I will clothe you in my righteousness, not yours. He, he's no interest in self-made men, trust me. No interest. But if you buy from me, I will give you white raiment, white clothing, so that you may cover the shame of your nakedness and it not be seen. And buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may really see. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, which is a messianic passage in Isaiah, you know, beginning with verse 1, where Messiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which never satisfies? Listen. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, and hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. There it is, the covenant. An everlasting covenant. My steadfast and sure love. So, the word buy there is the language of selling out, in effect. Selling out. And I think what Jesus is talking about is, is that you can spend your life on things that are temporal. Or you can spend your life, you can trade your life, you can sell out for that which is eternal. And if you do, you will be spiritually rich. You will be spiritually rich. You will be clothed. You will be clothed before God and before your fellow man as righteous and spotless in God's eyes. And your eyes will be opened. And you will begin to see. You will begin to see clearly. We're about out of time. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here's, here's you know, one assurance that's given. If you're wondering whether or not you're a child of God, have you been disciplined recently? I see that hand. All right, good. 
because he does discipline. He, he does things to get the attention of those that he loves because he wants them, you know, to know him and to walk in his ways. All right? So, and one of the things that's the issue here is that, is, is that our, our walk matches our talk, you know, because he says, I, you know, I know your works, and, and over here, but you're saying something else. You know what I'm saying? So he will discipline those that he loves. Now, and then here's the verse we all love, and we'll conclude with this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, I'm talking about even like today, <laughs> you know, if you hear his voice today. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will eat with him, and he with me. Um, Greeks had three meals a day, if you will. The first meal, breakfast, was called akratisma. Akratisma. It consisted of, for a good Greek, a piece of dried bread. It would be like having toast, and they would dip it in red wine. That was breakfast. The second meal, the midday meal, was called Ariston. A person didn't go home usually to eat that meal. It was simply something that was eaten along the way, maybe as a snack or by the side of the road or you know, just sitting beside a colonnade. You, you would get out your sack lunch, if you will, or your little backpack or your script, and you would eat some some bread and some fish, but you would, you would, it was almost like fast food, if you will. And then there was the evening meal, diapnon in the Greek, diapnon, the evening meal. It was the main meal of the day. And when you ate it, people lingered and they sat around the table together and they talked. And they were in relationship. And they, they talked about the day. And they, they, quote, fellowshipped. They really got to know each other in the diapnon. So which word do you think Jesus uses here when he says, I'll come in and eat with you? Diapnon. He has a desire for relationship. A desire for closeness and intimacy. In that day and time, that's how you established friendship and relationship. You sat down and had that kind of meal together. I recently finished listening to a book on audio with my Uncle Joe while I was staying with him. Thirteen days in September. And it was about... Jimmy Carter back in 78 getting Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat to Camp Camp David. You remember? Because they were working out the peace accord. You know, and didn't didn't they get like a Nobel Peace Prize or something for that? You know, this hard work they did at Camp David. You know what I'm saying? But here's the thing you need to know about. I, I, I listened to that book and I listened carefully. Begin and Sadat, in that 13-day period, stayed in separate quarters, 
They never ate a meal together. Because that would symbolize intimacy and closeness and friendship. A heart that's open and receptive to another. Jesus is saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And Jesus is the perfect gentleman. He never barges through the door. (laughs) But he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears and opens the door, I will come in and I will die up not. I will live life, love, befriend fellowship go deep with him that's what you're offered okay want to live hot that's what you do let's pray